Lord, thank you for your word. Um, thank you that it is a light um, unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. Thank you that it gives us sure direction and guidance for our lives. Um, for we know that we live in a dark world uh, where things are not always clear um, and where the way to live is often difficult to discern. So we are thankful for your word, which speaks clearly and authoritatively on these things. Um, so I pray this morning that you would be with us, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might discern what it is that you have said in your word and how this applies to us. Uh, let this be um, a great benefit to us as we go out from this place and as we live our lives um, for your glory. This we pray in your holy name. Amen. Right. Over the last few weeks, we've been doing a series called By the Book. Um, and this has been focusing on the Bible, focusing on the Scriptures. And today is the third installment in that series. Uh, last week, Nick introduced the idea that the Bible is inspired. And that's the word he used, inspired. Now, by this, we don't mean that the Bible is an inspiring book, although, of course, it is. Um, the Bible tells us many wonderful things that we wouldn't know without it. Um, it tells us the only way to life and salvation. And so, of course, it is a very inspiring book. Um, but when we say that the Bible is inspired, we mean that its origin is from God. It is the very Word of God. And, of course, we quoted 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 um, to look at this. These verses say this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And of course, the key part of that is that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It has God as its primary author and its origin. And of course, because the Bible is the Word of God, we need to approach it with humility. We can't set ourselves over and above the Bible as its ultimate judge, but rather we come before the Bible knowing that it is the Word of God and that God is the ultimate judge of everything. So we need to be humble. We can't say, you know, I like that bit over there in the Bible, but that other bit over there is not for me. I like that, but not that, and therefore we pick and choose. We can't have that attitude when we approach the Bible because it is the Word of God. Instead, we must humbly accept its teachings, its guidance, its promptings, and submit ourselves to them, because it is the very Word of God. Now, all of that was what Nick spoke about last week. This morning, I'd like to build upon this foundation. Uh, last week we saw, and as I've been explaining now, the Bible is the Word of God, but I'm sure many of you also know that the Bible was written by men. People wrote the Bible. So how can this be? How can the Bible be, on the one hand, the Word of God, and yet, on the other hand, written by men? And so that's what I'd like to explore this morning. And of course, to do this, I'd like to look at a particular passage. And this is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. Now, I've got it up on the screen, and this is from the NET Bible, which I've chosen to read from this morning, but feel welcome to look at it in your own versions of the Scriptures as well. All right, 2 Peter, 
Chapter 1, verses 16 to 21 says this, For we did not follow cleverly concocted fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus. No, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory. This is my dear Son, in whom I am delighted. When this voice was conveyed from heaven, we ourselves heard it, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. You do well if you pay attention to this, as you would to a light shining in a murky place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you do well if you recognize this. No prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So I'm going to spend the majority of our time this morning looking at this passage. Um, And I'd like to speak kind of in general about the passage, and we'll go through it roughly verse by verse, um, and then I'd like to make some broader observations about how this applies to the topic we're looking at this morning. Now, the first thing I'd like to observe is that this passage is written by the Apostle Peter. Um, some of you may have figured that out, given that the book that it's from is called Second Peter. It's the second letter that Peter wrote to a group of Christians. And so this is what he wrote. This is, of course, the same Peter whom Jesus had taken from his profession as a fisherman. He said, come, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. And of course, from this very humble beginning, Peter went on to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was there when Jesus turned the water into wine. He was there when Jesus fed the 5,000. He was with Jesus all through his ministry and even at his death. He was there when he was crucified, and Peter was there as one of the first people at his tomb when he was resurrected. Peter saw the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. And of course, these words here are written by that Peter. So the point is, Peter is the human author of this passage of the Word of God. He is the human author. Now secondly, notice that Peter begins his section by reminding his readers about some of the things that they had previously been taught. And of course, all of these things relate to Jesus Christ. Now we know that Peter and the other apostles taught much about Jesus Christ. As I've said, they were with him through his whole ministry. They heard all of Jesus' own teachings. They saw his miracles. They saw his life. And all of these things they passed on in their own teachings when they were talking to other Christians. But Peter in this passage mentions two things, two things specifically. He says, remember about Jesus' power and his return. Remember when we told you about those things, those things in specific, specifically. Now, of course, this is an interesting point. Why does Peter mention these two things? And what are these two things specifically? If you're going to read the Greek very literally, it would be his power and his coming. 
Um, but you see the NET translates this return, and many scholars think this is talking about Jesus' second coming. And so here we have Peter saying, remember that I told you about Jesus, that he was going to come again and establish his kingdom fully. That's what he's talking about here. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now also notice, Peter says that when he told them about Jesus and about his return, he was not following a cleverly concocted fable. Now in saying this, Peter recognizes the great danger of such stories like this. There are indeed cleverly concocted fables about Jesus, which we can easily be led astray by. And of course, Peter is aware of this, and he is warning them against this. Uh, church history bears this out in many ways, that there are cleverly concocted fables. Um, all through the pages of history, we can see people saying this about Jesus and that and the other, and most of it they support with a passage from the Bible here or a passage there, um, and they say various things. Uh, of course, we reach a time in history such as the Reformation where this comes clearly to the fore, where many Christians say all of these things that we've been saying for a long time are not the clear teaching of Scripture and we need to move away from this. And even in modern times, we have clearly concocted fables, fables about God and fables about Jesus. For example, many people are taught in evolution. And they're taught that this proves that God did not create the world, that God did not create people. Um, I know we have high schoolers here, and if you do level two and level three bio, this will be the predominant worldview that you are taught. These are cleverly concocted fables. And these fables are indeed clever. That's the point, right? They're not easy to detect or easy to see why they're false. They're clever, they're cunning, and they're very deceitful. And so therein lies their great danger to us. And Peter's aware of this. And so he's contrasting what they have presented about Jesus Christ with the cleverly concocted fables that the world will present us. And so how does Peter know that he is not following a cleverly concocted fable? How does he know that Jesus is really going to return and to fully establish his kingdom? Um, and in this passage, he gives two reasons. Two reasons. The first reason is that he was an eyewitness of the grandeur of Jesus Christ. He was not merely passing on something that he had learnt secondhand. He had been personally present at the transfiguration. And this is, of course, in verses 17 and 18 on the screen. Now, I'm going to read the passage of the transfiguration from Matthew just to show you what he's talking about in case you're unfamiliar with this story. Uh, Matthew 17, verses 1 to 8, say this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So this is the experience that Peter had that he is referring to when he says they saw the majesty of Jesus Christ. They saw his glory. Um, Now, most theologians think that the transfiguration is kind of a foreshadowing of the second coming of Christ. And so that's why, or one of the reasons why they think Peter's talking about the second coming of Christ in this passage. They think he's talking about the return of Christ. But that's the first reason. The first reason Peter says that what he is passing on is reliable is because he has seen firsthand the life of Jesus and his glory. And so he knows that the things he says are true. He's had a foretaste of the glory to come when Christ returns. And the second reason is this, and this is the one I want to really focus in on a bit more. He says he was not following a clearly concocted fable because the word of God, or the prophetic word, is altogether reliable. It's altogether reliable. Uh, When he says this, he's probably referring to the Old Testament in particular. That was the word of God in his day. Uh, That was what he'd grown up knowing as the word of God. Um, But of course, we can extend this to the New Testament as well, and therefore it refers to the whole Bible. Um, Peter himself even calls some of the writings in the New Testament scripture. Um, For example, a couple chapters later in the same book, he says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. And the key point there I want you to see is that when Peter is talking about the letters of Paul, which we have in the New Testament, he says people twist them as they do the other scriptures. He could have just said as they do the scriptures, but by saying other scriptures, he's clearly implying that the letters of Paul are themselves scripture, are themselves the word of God. And so here we have Peter saying that parts of the New Testament, parts which he was already aware of, were considered by him to be the word of God to be the prophetic word. Of course, Paul himself speaks of the same thing. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, And we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So, The second reason that Peter says uh, he knows he's not following a cleverly concocted fable and telling them about Jesus Christ and telling them about his return is because the word of God is altogether reliable. And of course, the word of God had foretold these things. It had told in advance that Jesus was going to come, that he was going to die for the sins of his people, that he was going to be raised from the dead, and ultimately that he was going to come back and rule. These things are all known from the word of God which is completely reliable. Now, because the scriptures are completely and altogether reliable, Peter says this, you do well if you pay attention to this as you would to a light shining in a murky place 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I've already mentioned the fact that the world can be a very dark place, um, a very murky place. Um, it can be difficult to discern what's right on the one hand and what's wrong on the other. But the Word of God speaks clearly about these things. And so it makes perfect sense that we should pay attention to it, that we should look to the Word of God as to a light in a murky place. And then he goes on and says, Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Again, this is a reference to the return of Jesus Christ. When this present age of night and darkness will be done away with and the day dawns is when Christ comes and finally establishes his reign and rule over the earth. And we also know that Christ is sometimes referred to as the morning star. Now, I'd like to spend our remaining time looking at the final two verses, verses 20 and 21. Uh, these say this, Above all, you do well if you recognize this. No prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The final verse there speaks about men being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, and this word is used other places in the Bible. It's used of a ship in a storm being carried along by the wind and the waves. And I think that can be a helpful illustration. These men didn't speak from their own imaginations. They didn't speak from their own wisdom, but rather they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And yet we also see clearly that it was men who spoke. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the question I want to ask is this. How does this work? How can something be both the word of God and the word of men? That's what I asked at the start. Now, I think many people kind of have a way of imagining this situation, which can lead us into some errors. Um, I think people like to think like this. They imagine God up there, right? He's created the world. He's created the heavens and the earth. And then he kind of takes a step back, and he looks at his creation, um, and he says, okay, men are sinful, so we're going to have to sort that out, and I'm going to send Jesus Christ to deal with that. And then he looks around the earth, and he says, okay, now, who can I choose to write my word in the Bible? And he looks at the candidates. He says, oh, we've got um, Jimmy John over here. You know, he's a fairly esteemed character, well-liked by his community, and he knows some good stuff as well. Um, on the other hand, um, there's this guy, Paul, or this guy, Peter, and they're also good candidates. You know, they've had an upbringing in the Word of God. They know the Word of God. Um, so maybe I'll choose them to write my Word. And I think we can be tempted to view the situation like that. God kind of stands back and he surveys all the people and he says, now who should I choose? Um, but unfortunately, this kind of thinking shows an entirely false conception of God. It shows a God that's detached from reality a God who's created everything here and then stepped back and kind of let it do its own thing until he needs to come back and interact with it. The fact of the matter is we believe a God who is intimately involved in the things he has created from beginning to end. There's no God looking at creation and learning things from about his creation and seeing things in people. The situation is far more like this. From eternity past, God 
plan to save his people in Jesus Christ. He knew that they would sin and he knew how he would redeem them. And also from eternity past, God had planned to write down his word through human people. And so when the appropriate time came, he created Paul. He created Paul from the beginning and directed his life in all of its details, all the different experiences he had, all the learnings, all the wisdom, all the knowledge that came to him as he grew in his life. God directed and controlled those things, and he was sovereign over them, so that when Paul came to write the scriptures, he was the kind of person that would spontaneously and of his own free will write exactly what God wanted him to say as the word of God. And I think that's a far better way to see the situation. God doesn't choose candidates and say, you know, how can I get this guy to say what I want him to say? God is actively involved in the lives of his apostles from beginning to end, shaping them and molding them so that when they come to write the scriptures, they can, they're able to write in such a way that is what God wants them to say and yet also exactly and completely natural for them to do. And so it is their word and it is the word of God. That's the situation. So to summarize this point, the scriptures are both the word of God and the word of men. There's a sort of double agency involved here. It is not that the scriptures are half the word of God and half the word of men, kind of 50-50. It's actually 100% the word of God and at the same time, 100% the word of men. Now, of course, this creates a few complications as well, um, and I have a few more points to make. Um, naturally, given the fact that there are men involved in this situation, men with different experiences, different talents, different styles, and different personalities, the scriptures can read quite differently in one place than in another. And so we have different genres in scripture. We have different personalities coming to the fore, different styles in different places. We have one writer here who can write very formally and another who's quite colloquial. We have many different genres. We have historical narrative. We have poetry and psalms. We have apocalyptic literature. Uh, we have epistles and letters in the New Testament. And all of these different genres together form the Bible. And of course, we need to read them in light of the genres that they are. This is a very human element to the scriptures, a very human element. We also have to be aware of the cultural and historical context of the scriptures. People write from a cultural and historical perspective. They understand things in a particular way. And when these men came and wrote the scriptures... They thought in these terms, in these categories. And so it's helpful to be able to understand these things and to interpret in light of that. And of course, it also reveals the importance of interpretation. The scriptures are something which need to be interpreted. Now, the general principle that we use is that we interpret the less clear passages by the more clear passages. Um, and I'm sure many of you have heard that in that kind of analogy before, you interpret the less clear passages by the more clear passages. Um, there's one thing in particular I'd like to say about that principle. I mean, people often take that principle as we interpret the passages that are less clear to me by the passages that are more clear to me, um, which can be a very misleading thing. 
the Bible has its own inherent scheme where some places are more clear and some places are less clear. When we speak about interpreting less clear passages by more clear passages, for example, we would want to interpret a place like Revelation, which is an apocalyptic letter, highly symbolic and inherently less clear than a place where we have historical narrative. So when they talk about the same things, we interpret the less clear by the more clear. And if you have the conception in your mind that I'm going to interpret the places that are less clear to me by the places that are more clear to me, you can run into issues. You can run into issues. Now, of course, we all naturally do that anyway, and it's hard to avoid that. Um, but the principle as it stands is there are places in the Bible that speak clearly about things, and there are places that are less clear inherently. And so we need to be careful to interpret the less clear places by the more clear places. And of course, we also need to take into account the full counsel of God. We don't, like I was saying before, some people have this attitude where they say, I like this bit, but not this bit. And so I'll go with that, but not that. Um, we need to take into account the whole counsel of God. We need to take into account what the entire scripture says about God, says about Jesus Christ, and what he has done. And a, a typical example of this is the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is not clearly explained to us in any one passage. And so in order to understand it fully, we need to look at what the entire scripture says about that subject. And this is very important, of course. So we see that the scriptures are both the word of God and the word of men. And this creates difficulties for us. But I want you to be encouraged because I'm going to leave you with the same point that Peter makes. He says, pay attention to the word of God, for it is fully reliable. Despite the difficulties that we face, despite the, the, trick, the trickiness of interpreting things and getting things right, the word of God is fully reliable. And God has promised that he will give us clear wisdom and guidance through his spirit about these things. We know that we can't understand these things without God, without his help and guidance, without his spirit working in our hearts and minds to show us what is true and what is false. And this is what he has promised to do. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, he has promised to give you a spirit and his spirit will illuminate your understanding so that you can fully and truly understand what he has written. This is what God has promised to do. It doesn't rely on your own cleverness or your ability. God has promised that he will teach you the truth. And so trust in that. The scriptures are fully reliable. They are the word of God. They make no error. They're inspired. Their origin is from God. And so we can trust him. So trust the word of God. Trust the scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, you are so faithful. Uh, we know that we are in such need of your spirit in us, in such need of your wisdom and your guidance. For the world is a dark place. It's difficult to understand truth from fiction. It's difficult to understand our place in the world without your counsel and without your wisdom and guidance. So we look to you in confidence, knowing that you have promised, promised to reveal these things to us, promised to speak clearly to us in the scriptures. And we are thankful for this. We are thankful that you have not left us in the world without a light, but that you have given us Jesus Christ 
as an ultimate revelation of yourself and that you have given us your word which clearly testifies about him and teaches us that he is God, that he is your son, that he has died for our sins um, and that he has been raised again to glory. So we look to you with faith and confidence, trusting in your ability to save us and knowing that yours shall be the glory. For you alone have done these wonderful things. You alone have created the world and you alone have saved mankind. So yours is the glory and the honor and the praise, both now and forever. Amen.